Well, guys, as I mentioned earlier, it is Father's Day. I have to tell you, as I get a little bit older now, my kids are all grown, and to one extent or the other, they're or all gone. Well, Father's Day is changing for me. It's, it's morphed. For me, when the kids were young, Father's Day, it was so much fun. That's how I would characterize it. You dads out there, I mean, heck, you moms, you know on, on Mother's Day and Father's Day, the real joy in the day, especially when your kids are young, is it's not really in the gifts they give you, but at least for me, it was more in watching how excited they were to give them. That was always the best part. They almost seemed like they were going to explode with love and pride over what they had bought for their dad. My favorite Father's Day memory, we laugh about it all the time at home, when the kids were super young. They had asked me to go upstairs, and the kids and Joan were downstairs getting ready, wrapping the gifts. And, and so when they were done, Joan told my son John, who was at this point probably like three years old, go tell Daddy that he can come down and open his gifts. So John, again, just bursting with pride and excitement, he comes over to the bottom of the stairs, and he yells with all the power and exuberance that a three-year-old little boy could muster. Dad, he yells, come open your gifts. And with a, with, a, with a small pause, he was so excited, he just goes, it's a tie. Those days were short, way too short. And so now, Father's Day, for me, well, it's turned into maybe, maybe the most reflective holiday on the calendar. It's a full of nostalgia, a decent amount of emotion all the time, lots of gratitude for the father I had, and an introspection for me on the father I've become. Next week, on Friday night, my first child, my oldest daughter, Courtney, my pride and my joy is, is going to get married. Five days from today, I'm going to be walking her down this aisle and giving her away. Honestly, I, I can't talk too much about that yet. I hope to be able to by this time next week. So what I'd like to do is today and, and next Sunday, two talks from the perspective, from the heart of a father. Next week, I'm, I'm going to share with you what's going through my heart as I give my daughter away. This week, though, this Father's Day, I want to return to a story that I feel is kind of like a, a diamond in the scriptures. The more you spin it and turn it, the more facets of it you discover, and the more precious I believe it, it becomes. Sure, it's about a dad, but there, there are so many profound lessons in the story for all of us. I've talked about it before. I'm telling you I'm going to talk about it again. I've shared it with my family. I've warned my sons about its truth. And dads, today I want to remind you of these truths too. Heck, I, I might just do it every Father's Day. This story that I'm referring to, it's as ancient as recorded history, and yet I'm telling you, it's as fresh as a CNN headline, which pondered, quote, why grade-A execs get Fs as parents. The subtitle was, the qualities that make for corporate success are often not what are needed to be an effective mom or dad. Here's what the article mentioned. It was a sobering statistic. 36% of the children raised by leaders on executive level teams in the workplace, 36% of those kids require regular forms of treatment for drug abuse or psych psychiatric disorders as compared to 15% of kids in the general population. And I have to tell you, while correlation is not always causation, I believe there's a lesson for us here. 
Today's story, today's story is, is about Israel's second king, King David. But it's not just his story. It's my story. It's your story. It's the story of and a warning for every hard-charging, high-achieving, competitive guy that wants to win out there. And that's me, and and I need to be reminded of this story over and over and over again. And my guess is you probably do too, so so let's jump in. This week, I read the best description of David that I've come across. In so many ways, he's the alpha male. I mean, he's the big dog. He's the winner amongst losers, the one all of us guys, in one way or another, want to be. They summed him up this way. They said, quote, he was a musician so skilled that a king would summon him to play because his music would drive away the king's depression when nothing else helped. David was the musical equivalent to Prozac. And speaking of the famous encounter between David and Goliath, right? They said he was a formidable warrior who won a legendary battle against a great champion when he wasn't even old enough to shave. He he attracted the greatest soldiers of his day to serve under him, and he subjugated his nation's enemies in a way that Israel had never experienced before and would never experience again. They they went on. David was a a fierce competitor. The scriptures talk of confrontations where he would take on a lion, a bear, anything. You name the challenge, David was ready to face it. He was a poet. He wrote psalms that expressed the deep longing of the human heart for God. His his words were so personal and powerful that thousands of years later, they remain the single most moving and influential devotional literature ever written. David wrote the prayer book for the human race. He was a statesman. He had such wisdom and political skill that Israel achieved its highest level of economic well-being and political stability under his reign. His kingship would forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel. His rule, it was seen as Israel's version of, well, the the idyllic Camelot. The time of David's rule, it would be looked at so powerfully in the people's memories that they they would refer to the Messiah to come as the son of David because they hoped he would reclaim the glory that existed when David was on his throne. David was... Well, Amy was a man's man. He was an immensely attractive guy. We're told several times that he was so attractive physically and in his personality that men and women alike were drawn to his charismatic charm. He was a magnetic figure. All this in one dude. Amazing. He had the poetic soul of Shakespeare, the competitive heart of Tiger Woods, the the music the music ability of Pavarotti, the the statesmanship of Lincoln, and the physical looks of Brad Pitt. He was, gentlemen, this was the whole package. See, David, David was everything every man is trying to be, at least in terms of his accomplishments, those measured outside of the home anyway. I mean, he was the ultimate corporate success. But his family, his family... What a mess. They were part of the aforementioned 36%. And maybe this story is going to ring a bit true for you. Maybe, maybe it rings a bit of a bell. I, I sure know it holds a heck of a warning for me. We have to ask ourselves, gentlemen, because the story is so familiar. How can a man be so successful in climbing the corporate ladder? How can a man lead tens and hundreds and thousands in the work world 
but fell so miserably in his own home. Let me remind you again. Now, most of you know the story of David and Goliath. Some of you have heard of the story of David and Bathsheba. If you haven't, by way of background, David, now king, one day, a bit later in his career, his fame had, had now been elevated, his bank account was full, his corner office already achieved. The scriptures say that, quote, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Well, one evening, David got up from his bed and, and walked around the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers, listen to the language here, to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Gentlemen, David, the great, rich, and powerful king of Israel's downfall, begins the way so many modern-day downfalls do. A guy got a little bit full of himself. Pride crept in. He began to believe at some level that his position entitled him to take whatever it was he wanted, even if it was a woman, even if it was the wife of the man who had gone off to war in his place. Well, in bringing new meaning to the old saying, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up, after Bathsheba winds up pregnant with David's child, he attempts to cover up his sin, and he winds up being responsible for the murder of her husband, Uriah. And when confronted with what he's done, God, through the prophet Nathan, says to him, because you've done this, now therefore, this sword, the sword, will never depart from your house. This is God speaking to him, because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. David, you don't know this yet, God is saying to him. You don't understand it now, but you will one day. What you've done, the way you've acted, your decisions to turn your back on me and my ways and instead to, to use your power and influence to take the wife of another man and, and then have him killed, that sin is going to start an echo, a pattern. My dad is a great dad. My father has never murdered anyone. As far as I'm aware, he hasn't slept with another man's wife. But my father, just like his son, is not perfect. You see, my father's sin patterns, his shortcomings, the places where he chose in his life to go his way and not God's way, you see, I, I grew up watching them. I grew up surrounded by them. They were my example. They were the only example I understood about how to be a man. And just like my dad's goodness echoes in my life, so does his brokenness. This Father's Day morning, mine echoes in the lives of my son. And that's why every Father's Day, gentlemen, it is time not just to open, to get, open gifts, but to open our hearts and reflect. You see, in David's family, I mean, look, you think your family is dysfunctional? <laughs> While David, I mean, he's killing it on the battlefield, right? He's king at the castle. But at home, here's what we see play itself out over the next couple of chapters. There's adultery and murder. There's incest, sexual harassment, sexual abuse. There's rape. 
There's substance abuse. There's one brother, he murders another. There's a couple of stepmoms who leverage their kids against one another. David winds up choosing to be absent in the lives of his kids, one of them for five years. One of David's sons steals his dad's house and sleeps with his stepmoms. Vicious infighting over the family inheritance ensues, and, and then there's some more murder. I mean, man, David was a rock star on the battlefield. He was killing it out there. But meanwhile, back at home, they were killing one another. Why is it? I have to ask myself this. Why is it that men often win at work and lose at home? Is there something that David could have done that would have changed the trajectory of his family? Is there something you could do to change the directory of yours? Gentlemen, I'm here this Father's Day to bring you good news. There is. But I have to warn you, the, the, the answer is not easy, and it's not natural. So listen up. The story goes like this. David had several children, but he had them by different mothers. For example, he had a son named Amnon. Amnon was the child. It was his first son, the child of his second wife. Now, he had another two children. He had a son named Absalom and a daughter named Tamar, who were brother and sister, born from the same mom. So here's where the story, it takes, well, it takes another dark turn. In the course of time, the scriptures tell us, that Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful half-sister of Absalom, son of David. Well, this Amnon, he became so obsessed with his sister Tamar, again, his half-sister, that he, he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Well, of course it did. I mean, not only should it have seemed impossible, it was forbidden. But, unfortunately, women who were off limits hadn't stopped his father David when it came to Bathsheba, and it wasn't going to stop Amnon either. You see, sin. It echoes, you know. And so Amnon, Amnon hatches a plan, which eventually comes to this culmination. The scriptures write that he grabbed her, Tamar, and said, come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Listen to the language. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where, where, could, where could I get rid of my disgrace? But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Sin echoes. This next line is, is just so con convicting to me. Perhaps if you've ever woken up in a bed where you shouldn't have been, you've felt a similar emotion. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. You see, he didn't hate himself for his sin. He didn't hate himself for what he cho chose to do. There was no moment there of self-examination. There was no repentance. He just hated her. You know, and, I, and I've spent... I spent a lot of time in this story over the years. The lessons are endless. It seems to me, though, that Amnon must have known the story of his father David and Bathsheba. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but my guess is that it was a pretty big deal in Israel. 
I mean, heck, Amnon had a brother, a half-brother that had died in the story. And you know, if you read the Psalms, David cries out over, over what had happened with Bathsheba over and over. So I think Amnon knew, but my gut tells me that D David never spoke to his firstborn son about it personally. You see, like so many of, well, of us preachers, like us preachers, we're a lot better in the pulpit sometimes than we are in the family room. It went unmentioned at home. Like so many difficult topics do between fathers and sons and fathers and daughters. I mean, I, I, he probably talked to them about the Mets, but not about the sex. Well, why do I think that? Well, first, first it's personal experience. I'm a guy, and this is what we do. It comes very naturally f to us to avoid difficult conversations. I don't like to have them in the office, but I have to, right? So I do it begrudgingly because I, I really want to win there. But unfortunately for men, for guys, since we can avoid them at home, we almost always do, with often devastating results. You see, we see it here. After throwing her out of his room and having the door bolted behind her, the Scriptures say that Tamar, who was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore, Tamar, after this is all over, she puts ashes on her head and and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. Guys, this is David's little girl. This is his daughter. I imagine he feels about her the way I feel about mine. Mine's getting married next week and I'm struggling with talking about that. Imagine how he feels about tomorrow. I know, he, I know how he feels, because here's what the Scriptures say. When King David heard all of this, he heard what happened, he was furious. When he heard all this, he was furious. Of course he was. And do you know what he did in his fury? Nothing. The Scriptures indicate, sadly and quite painfully for Tamar, and look, I, I want you to understand what Tamar, what Tamar thought about her father. She was sure he would do something. After all, he's King David. He's the warrior king. This is King David that, that took down Goliath. I mean, she knows my, my, my dad. I know he, he's a good man. He's a just man. He would do something. In fact, in the story, when Amnon is trying to have his way with her, she says to him, please, please go speak to the king. But now... Now the king knows. Now her dad knows. And her dad doesn't do anything. Now, I mean, David's a good man. And he didn't do anything. Why? I mean, how could you as a dad do nothing? Well, I mean... I, my guess is, I think there's two really big reasons. I'll give you the first now, and then I'm going to show you the second in a moment. The first, my guess, is that since he hadn't addressed his issues with his son, since he'd never gone to him and said, son, I know you've probably heard about uh, the incident with Bathsheba and how I messed up, and so, son, I, I want to talk to you about that. I want to share with you how I messed up. I, I want to tell you about 
some of the, the gunk in my own heart that, that might be in yours too since you're my boy and, and, and I've raised you and you've watched me and, and I want you to be on the lookout for it. I mean, he could have, he could have while, while he was growing up, said, son, here's an issue that we have in our family. In fact, you look back, you'll see this issue in David's family going all the way back. He could have said, here's the struggles that, that I've had with sex or, or substance abuse or, or sin. But since he, he had never had that conversation, since he'd never broached a very difficult topic with his kid, my guess is at this point he's likely thinking, how, how can I go to him and say anything after what I did with Bathsheba? He, he knows what I did. He's just going to call me a hypocrite. I, I mean, if I go and I say something about this, he's just going to bring up that and throw it in my face, and who could blame him? How can I say anything with my track record? Gentlemen, dads, parents, two things on this one. This is why how you live before your kids matters. You see, this is how generational sin patterns get handed down and not broken because they're never addressed. They're, they're never brought out into the light. And, and it all takes place under the heading of, well, I mean, how can I say anything? He, he got it from me. Look, we all know, okay, values are caught and not taught, but so is sin. Listen, listen, dads. You're only going to have those kids in those impressionable years for so long. So my first, my first admonition would be is live before them in such a way that you do not invalidate your ability to correct them. You practice before you preach. Now, I know when I say that, you might be thinking, well, it's too late for me. I've I already evidenced some behavior in my kids' lives that I, I, I'm ashamed of. Or maybe you're thinking, gosh, John, this is a pretty big weight to dump on my shoulders on Father's Day. I'm not perfect. I, I screw up. And I would say, of course you do. I do too. And so in the areas where you do, you simply have the conversation with your kids at the appropriate time, at the appropriate age, about the stuff in your own life that they've seen you screw up. You don't have to go and reveal new secrets here. I think Amnon knew about Bathsheba. But you enter into this heart-level discussion about the things in your life that they've seen or experienced will that you owe them an apology for and, and that you don't want to see visited back on them. Imagine if David had had that talk with Amnon. Imagine what could have been prevented. Imagine how he could have gone. Imagine how he could have done something. But Tamar, I mean, Tamar's daughter is so crushed by her father's inability, his paralysis, that she can't even stand to go home. Instead, she goes and lives with her brother Absalom, who comforts her. But even Absalom, when it comes to the family business of, well, just sweep it under the rug, Absalom, the scriptures say, Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. He hated Amnon, but he never said a word. David was furious with Amnon, but he never said a word. You see, maybe, maybe if David had said something, maybe it could have prevented what came next. Because 
after stewing about what Amnon had done to his sister for two years, after sitting around and wondering how his father could do nothing, Absalom finally, in his disgust and discouragement, he takes matters into his own hand and he comes up with a plot to kill Amnon. The scriptures write that Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Now, if you know the story of David and what he did with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, think about this. Absalom's plan was to get Amnon drunk and have him killed, which is exactly what David, that was his plan, how he was going to deal with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Sin echoes, you know. Gosh, David had only had that conversation with his boys. Well, I mean, after Absalom exacts his revenge and kills Amnon, Absalom flees for his life, and he's gone for three years. And so while David mourns for the loss of his son Amnon, the Scriptures tell us, quote, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been consoled. He was consoled concerning Amnon's death. He longed to go to Absalom. He knew where he was. He longed to go to him to have Well, to have those conversations, maybe to repent for where he had screwed up, Uh, maybe, maybe to forgive his son for what his son had done. He longed to be restored to his son, to make everything right. And do you know what David did about it? Well, he did the same thing that he did last time. Nothing. Maybe tomorrow, he thought. Maybe tomorrow. How is it that a man can be so powerful and strong at work and so impotent at home? Well, I mean, David continues in his ineffective mourning, so much so that Joab, his military commander, he's kind of sick of hearing about this, and so he sends to David a woman to remind him of something about God, that a man, David, who was described as a man after God's own heart, Uh, That's something that he should have known, which is that God, he devises ways so that a banished person doesn't remain banished from him. And so under conviction, David orders Joab to have Absalom brought back, to have him brought home. But, David said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Absalom was brought home. He went to his own house, and he did not see the face of the king. You see, David was obeying. He, he was fulfilling his religious duty, but it really hadn't had any impact on his heart. And so he brings Absalom home, but for two more years he refuses to see his son, to confess to his son, to forgive his son, to have that hard, that heavy heart conversation that could have fixed it all, that could have changed the destiny of generations to come. Absalom begged for it. He kept asking, he kept going to Joab to try to get just an appointment to see his dad. But you know, I could just see Absalom, you know, your dad is a very busy man. I mean, he's killing it at the office. He's too busy doing kingly things right now. In fact, Absalom is so rejected He's so, re- so rejected so often, he actually winds up setting Joab's field on fire in an attempt to get his dad's attention. 
Now you know this, Absalom was not going to be the last kid to set a field on fire. He wasn't the last son to act up. He wasn't the last daughter to dress inappropriately. He wasn't the last child to do something crazy and not good to try to get the intention of an inattentive dad. But man, David was killing it at the office. And, and so for two years, and now for a total of five, all Absalom wanted was his father. All he wanted was to be reconciled to his dad, to see his father's face. But David couldn't bring himself to draw him near. I mean, sure, he brought him back home. He was back in town. David did what he thought he had to do. He, he fulfilled his religious duty. He had provided a roof over, 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 the, over his son's head. He, he had made sure there was food on the table. Because David the dad was a good, he was a good provider. But Absalom wanted so much more. And, and here's the second reason, I think, why David does nothing. You see, the first was that I mean, he wanted to avoid the hard conversation where difficult discussions were going to happen and, and, and he was going to have to acknowledge some sin and grant some forgiveness. And, and so he avoided that hard conversation. But the second reason I think he decided to do nothing is I, I think he really thought at deep levels, guys, hear me on this, I think that he thought his role as a dad was that as long as he provided a roof over their head and food on the table, Right? That, that's what he thought his kids wanted. And all they ever wanted was his heart. But David wasn't equipped to give it. But can I remind you, man, he was killing it at the office. Guys, there is something in us. There is something in, in me, not to make generalizations or create stereotypes, my experience is that women are better at this than men. Guys, there is something in us. Our great temptation is not predominantly to just outright wickedness. Most dads I know are like my dad. They're good guys. They haven't murdered anybody. But you see, gentlemen, our great temptation is apathy. It's, it's this, this concept of kind of keeping it surface, staying distant, not getting involved, keeping silent, not leaning in or going deep. It's nothing new. It goes all the way back to creation itself. You know the story. God created men, and he created men, as we see this throughout the scriptures, to be these spiritual leaders in their home. That was the role that, that they were given, to lead and to guide and to protect not just homes, but hearts. Our role is not just food, housing, and clothing. And we began to abdicate that role early on. You see, in Genesis, when the tempter comes to Eve to tempt her with the forbidden fruit of becoming like God, have you ever noticed that, quote, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Who was with her? Who was with her? He was with her the whole time. And you know what he said? Nothing. Do you know what he did? Nothing. 
Can you imagine the story of the human family had our first father not abdicated his role to lead and to guide and to protect? Had he not given up on going in, entering in, leaning in, and having the difficult conversations, having the heart to hearts, deciding to challenge where challenge was needed? But I got to tell you, Adam was killing it in the garden, man. I mean, you should have seen those tomatoes. I don't have the time to go through all of David's story. But gosh, every dad should go and read this story over and over and over. Just keep spinning it, looking at the facets of it. Here's, here's what happens. Eventually, Absalom's heart is just, it's just turned so hard. He becomes so embittered by his father's inability to engage at this deep heart level with him. Heck, he, he, his father barely would see him. Eventually, Absalom... He decides he's going to spark a coup and he, he drives David out of his own palace. In fact, in a part of the story dripping in wickedness and the irony of generational sin, Absalom winds up on the roof of David's palace, the same palace, the same roof that David was on when he stared at Bathsheba, and he winds up having, having sex on the roof with David's wives just to humiliate his father. Gosh, sin echoes. But can you imagine if David had just had the tough conversation, if he had led at home and not just at the office, if he took his responsibilities there as seriously, because now his office is useless. Some of you know the story. Eventually, the tide turns and and David's able to muster enough of his army, and, and he takes back his kingdom. Absalom and his followers are driven out into the wilderness, and, and David's army pursues them. But David gives explicit instructions in regards to this son of his, Absalom. Quote, be gentle with the young man, Absalom, for my sake. Be gentle with the young man, Absalom. But war being what war is, Absalom winds up caught, surrounded, and horrifically killed by David's men. Now the scriptures record that several messengers were sent back to tell David of their victory. But each time they came, David didn't care about their victory. He only had one question. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? And then again, is the young man, that's great, but is the young man Absalom safe? And then the news finally came. David's army had indeed won, but the young man Absalom was not safe. Absalom was dead. Dads, come on now. I, I need you to enter this story. I need you to hear this with me now. The scriptures say that the king was shaken and he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. I know some of you are hearing this this morning and you unfortunately know this moment, this unspeakable pain. Absalom, his son, was gone and the king was shaken. In fact, shaken doesn't even seem like the right word, does it? I'm sure he was shaken. Unfortunately, I've been with some parents in these moments. And that moment, that pain, the sense of loss, it's nearly too much for a human being to bear. I mean, he had to have been thinking. David had to have been thinking he's a human being. He had to be going back through all of the days of of. of Absalom's childhood, when, when parenting was so much easier, when everything was so much easier being a dad, right? When all Absalom wanted was to play some ball in the yard or, or jump the waves in the ocean. 
But he had to be thinking about all the times Absalom said, hey, Dad, tell me one more time how you took down Goliath. I mean, Absalom had to be thinking, I was such a good dad, and, but life got crazy and, and work got busy. And I mean, parenting got hard and relating was difficult. And, and he was just so much more appreciated in his palace and on the battlefield. And Well, then comes the words that I hope this story will prevent me and every dad ever from uttering. As he went, David said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son. My son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom. My son. My son. If only I had. If only. You know, in the, in the entire story, all, this, all the details that are given about this father-son relationship, this is the first time, and then repeated over and over five times, this is the first time where David actually calls Absalom his son. Before it was this young man, but now he realizes what he has lost. My son, my son, my son. If only I had... Oh, my son Absalom, there are so many lessons for all of us here, but, but maybe for dads more than anybody else. See, I never want to be, and I don't want you to be, an if-only dad. I, I don't want that to be the final words on my parenting. Gentlemen, you were created to lead, not just to, to let it be. Apathy is our enemy. The odds are not in your favor. I can almost promise you that if you just ignore your responsibility to be a present dad, to be more than a provider, to be more than just a playmate, I can almost promise you that everything is not going to turn out okay. It will likely not just be okay. Your children were born to follow your lead. But if you do not lead, they will find somebody else who will. I know. We live in Menham and Chester. I know you're killing it at the office. I know you might feel more respected there. I know they reward you more there. But that is not your primary call. And so, this Father's Day, can I remind you, watch how you live before your kids so you have the right to have the difficult conversations in the places where you failed. Be willing to confess your, confess your mistakes. Ask their forgiveness and have an open dialogue about the generational sin patterns in your home. Guys, I'm telling you, you are the man. This is the generation that can break the chains of these generational sin patterns. You can change the legacy of your family. Do not be an if-only dad. I'll close with this. You know, our dads, my dad at least, was good. But we have, a, we have an even better model. You see, my dad did his best. Our dads did our best. But we have another example. 
Because all of us, all of us have a little Absalom in us. But you see, we have a, a, a father far better than David. See, like Absalom, in many ways, we, we've all rebelled against our heavenly father too. We've done our best to steal his kingdom for ourselves. And in many ways, and we know this, in many ways, we've brought some amount of public humiliation on, on the rooftop of our lives uh, to our heavenly father. But our father, our father is not like David. You remember, David refused to see Absalom when Absalom came home. And Jesus said, your father's not like that. In fact, he told the story of, of a father with a prodigal son who, when he sees the son return home, runs to him and throws his arms around him and pulls him close. David, when he was in danger from Absalom, the scriptures say that he, he fled from his son up the Mount of Olives and away from danger. Jesus, when he heard his sons were in danger, he fled down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem and into danger. David cried, my son, my son, I wish I had died in your place. Jesus cries out to you, my son, my son, I've died in your place. Gentlemen, this Father's Day, let's be like our great heavenly Father. He modeled it. You now live it. Lead. Stop killing it at work and start killing it at home. Enter in. Schedule the time, the place for the conversations. Have them often as you go about your life. Regularly, regularly ask for forgiveness and be sure to forgive. And you guide them, you laugh with them, you cry with them, and you lead them. There is no plan B in the life of, of your kids when it comes to you. And this Father's Day, whatever you do, don't be an if-only dad.